Hey everyone, and welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Sam Lee. Our guest today is Professor Nolan McCarty. He's the, he's the Susan Dodd Brown Professor of Politics and Public Affairs at Princeton University, as well as the Interim Dean of Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. He's an expert on US politics, democratic political institutions, and political game theory. His most recent book, Polarization, What Everyone Needs to Know, explores the origins, development, and implications of polarization in the United States. Professor McCarty, thanks so much for being here with us today. Great, thanks, I'm happy to be here. So just to start, would you mind you know, giving us a brief overview of your research? You know, why do you focus on polarization? Was there a specific issue or, or question that led you to that specific topic? Uh, not really. So I, my research on polarization goes back all the way, uh, all the way back to the time I was in graduate school. Uh, there, my dissertation advisors and I were looking at congressional roll call voting uh, and noticed that uh, the partisan component of how legislators vote, as well as the kind of ideological structure, you know, liberal to conservative, uh, had become much more pronounced. Uh, in recent decades, going back to the 1970s. Uh, so we're really motivated by uh, intellectual puzzle. Why is it that, you know, after a period of roughly bipartisanship in Congress, a uh, period in which there were many liberal Democrats, I mean, many conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans, cross-party coalitions were very, very common. Why that broke down, why that changed to the situation we have that we started to observe in the 1990s, but clearly have today where the parties are very distinct, separated. There are few, if any, liberal Republicans in Congress, very, very few conservative Democrats in Congress. And so really that intellectual question of how we got from where we were in the 1960s and 1970s to where we are, where we are today. Um, that's not to say it doesn't have important ramifications for public understanding of how American politics works, the dynamics of Congress, the relationship between Congress and the public, the ways in which economic and social change have occurred in the US and, and affected these things. But it, it really did start. It really did start with an intellectual puzzle. You know, why so much partisanship in Congress after several decades in which party didn't seem to matter nearly as much as it had say a hundred years before. Yeah, and uh, I think maybe to start, we can kind of dive into the weeds of partisanship and polarization. Uh, so one thing I, I thought was really interesting in your book is that you, you described that there are three different forms of polarization, policy, ideological, and partisan. How exactly are these three types of polarization defined? You know, what differentiates them? Are they interconnected? Yeah. So. So a starting point for answering this question is to note that at least in the public discourse, you know, journalists, uh, politicians, polarization is just a synonym for everything that's bad about politics. Uh, <laughs> so obviously, you want to make you know progress in helping people understand something. You want to have some definitions that say that polarization just simply is not a synonym for bad politics. Um, so polarization itself, you know, is a term that we steal from, you know, physics and the natural sciences, which simply is a, uh, a description of a system in which uh, there's a tendency toward more extreme values, uh, more people on extremes, fewer people in the middle, uh, kind of, you know, a bipolar, it doesn't have to be bi, but a polarity. Um, so, so that's polarization, you know, it just, it means that extreme points of view, extreme positions, they become more common relative to more centrist or moderate positions. Then you have to layer on that definition, you know, what it is we're talking about in terms of, you know, what's more, what things are more extreme, what things are more moderate. Uh, so when you think about policy polarization, it's really about policy preferences of politicians and voters. And so when we talk about policy uh, polarization, we, we simply mean that more people have extreme policy preferences uh, relative to more moderate policy preferences. So abortion is a very good example of 
you, you can use abortion as a good example of this phenomenon. You can imagine a world in which uh, many people have very kind of moderate or nuanced positions on, on abortion. Uh, they think abortion is wrong after the first trimester. They're willing to make lots of exceptions related to women's health, uh, rape, incest, other, other, other things like that. So you might think of that as a kind of a moderate position. You know, abortion is not great, but it shouldn't be illegal. So we would say that there's policy polarization on abortion to the extent to which that viewpoint declines in popularity relative to extremist uh, viewpoints, more extreme viewpoints, such as abortion should be illegal under all circumstances, or that abortion should be allowable under all circumstances through any you know trimester of pregnancy, so forth. Um, so that you know, so that 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 that's example. We would we would say that you know abortion is policy opinions are polarized to the extent to which those two extreme viewpoints have grown in popularity relative relative uh, to 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 the cent to the center. Um, there are other uh, forms of polarization. Uh, the second one you mentioned is ideological polarization. So there, we mean something broader than just a single policy issue. We really mean kind of how people organize themselves across clusters of policy issues or ideologies. So an idea, think of an ideology as sort of a cluster of policy preferences that relates how one preference might relate to another. So. United States, conservatism is a bundle of policies, like a position on tax cuts, a position on business regulation. One time it was really closely related to positions on international trade, it may also be related to some positions on, on social issues such as gay rights or abortion. And liberalism is, uh, is also a cluster of issues uh, related to, again, maybe perhaps preferences on tax rates, preferences on how generous the social safety net should be, perhaps also in conjunction with a set of positions on foreign policy or, or, or social or cultural policy. So we'd say that there's ideological polarization to the extent to which those two extreme packages of policies have grown in popularity relative to a more moderate position on these packages of policies. So it's a combination of, you know, tax cuts, abortion restriction, deregulation becomes more popular at the same time that popularity for tax increases, broader social safety net, uh, LGBTQ rights grows, and that there's a shrinkage of the set of people who kind of have a mixture of those positions, we would say that that's, uh, that's ideological uh, polarization. And then third, we can add on the layer of partisanship, the extent to which we can talk about the extent to which the parties polarizing, the extent to which the supporters or adherents to each of the parties have much more divergent policy preferences. So if there's a tendency for uh, you know, Republicans to take the strong conservative positions and Democrats to take increasingly liberal positions, we would say that there's a polarization in kind of partisan terms because this partisan differentiation uh, has grown uh, relative to people who, uh, you know, in the middle, independents and so forth, who are taking, you know, uh, those less uh, partisan positions. Right, and has the polarization that we've seen, you know, expand over the past four or five decades has that been mostly ideological polarization or has it been kind of all three of those? Uh, it's, essentially, it's essentially been all three of those. Um, uh, you can have ideological polarization without kind of strong policy polarization. Uh, but I think, it, you, you, you know, uh, they tend to go together because, you know, ideological polarization is kind of a bundle of policies. And so if you get policy polarization, you're probably gonna get ideological Polarization, vice versa, although they're not intrinsically logically uh, related. There's a logical connection between policy or ideological polarization and partisan polarization. You could have more and more conservatives and more and more liberals 
but if they don't match into the two political parties in the right way, then you're not going to get the partisan polarization. Uh, it, so it, it does so happen, however, that we have observed all three, especially at the, I should say, I, I think we should talk about this more in a second, if what I'll call the elite level, which has like members of Congress, uh, high elected officials, judges, activists, very, very clear trends uh, for all of these concepts toward more and more polarization, uh, more people on extremes, that, that those extreme viewpoints being more and more associated with parties. Um, you know, the, the questions about regular everyday voters are a little bit more, a little bit more nuanced. So we, we've seen somewhat less of that for, for those people. So essentially, the polarization that we're seeing among elites and politicians, judges, business executives is more extreme than, than what we're seeing, um, you know, in the public and in, in the voter base. Yeah, that's basically uh, the, find, the finding. The voters are catching up, I should say. So one of the things when you look at the data over a long period of time, you, uh, you see the trends for the elites starting much earlier. So I believe, as I mentioned in my opening story about why I've been doing this work is we started seeing this in Congress uh, in the late 1970s, uh, 1977, 78, through the 80s, 90s. Um, you couldn't find trends like that among, among voters, either in ideological polarization or policy polar, polarization or, or really even partisan polarization. They just didn't really show up uh, until perhaps the early 90s. Uh, and then you start to see a little, a little bit more of that. Uh, voters start to sort themselves more into parties. They tend to take on the views more associated with their, with their parties. You do see, at least to a certain extent, uh, somewhat more extreme viewpoints in, in the public, although most of what we've seen in the public is kind of a resorting of voters such that voters with liberal policy preferences have become associated with the Democratic Party and voters with conservative policy preferences have moved toward the Republican Party. Um, but really the public is kind of lagged behind the elites uh, when it comes to polarization, which uh, suggests that if we want to explain polarization, starting with a story of uh, polarized voters uh, incentivizing elected officials to take more and more extreme positions just isn't going to work very well. If anything, the causality runs from the elected politicians themselves creating a polarized political environment in which voters uh, you know, find themselves confronted with and therefore have to make polarized choices about which parties to support. Over time, liberal voters have decided, well, they're better off in the Democratic Party, so that's where they are. Conservative Party is better off in the, in, uh, you know, in, in the Republican Party. And so really, it does seem that the voter polarization really follows the elite polarization. So. Uh, it's important not to place the blame uh, with the voters. It seems like elite institutions, like political parties, the media, uh, activists played a much more proactive role in creating uh, the polarized environment than did regular everyday average voters. So why, I guess the question that comes to mind for me is why would political elites want to do this? Like what was this to, you know, strengthen their partisan party or, you know, why become more polarized? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there was a real, uh, there's a great book uh, uh, by Sam, uh, I believe it's Sam Rosenberg, uh, called The Polarizers. And uh, he actually goes quite through the history of kind of the party intellectuals uh, in the 1960s and 70s. And they thought it was a real, uh, challenge the American political system that our political parties weren't very coherent. So in the Democratic Party, you had labor-oriented liberals in the same party with uh, conservative democratic segregationists. The Republican Party had some mirror, almost a mirror image. They had some kind of liberal labor 
uh, Republican types and kind of you know you know white shoe uh, uh, waspy liberal Republicans in the Northeast, but also some kind of hardcore you know conservatives from the Midwest and from other parts of the country, and they view this lack of coherence in the party system is, is a real problem for the country, but also for the parties. So conservative activists thought if we're gonna promote a conservative agenda, we have to be able to dominate the Republican party. And so they set out to capture the institutions of the Republican party and move the Republican party to the right. In the same way that progressive uh, labor oriented Democrats uh, saw their agenda tied up with, uh, in some sense, purging the Democratic Party of its kind of segregationist conservative, conservative wing. And so both of these things were going on, you know, at, at the same time. One of the things that we found, uh, for a variety of reasons I'm happy to talk to, the conservatives were much more successful in their endeavors in the Republican Party uh, than the progressives were uh, in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party remains somewhat more heterogeneous. Uh, you know, it doesn't have conservatives anymore, but has a, a very large number of kind of moderate suburban, you know, white representatives to go with kind of a diversifying caucus of African-Americans and uh, Latinos. But the Republican party has become almost uh, overwhelmingly dominated by, by conservatives uh, and even more so in, in, in the last 10 years. So this is really a strategy of kind of elite activists and elected politicians in those parties uh, to kind of capture those parties so that they could use them as uh, tools for promoting uh, a, a particular uh, policy uh, policy agenda. Right, and you know, I, I hate to get to you know current events so so early in the interview, but it, it kind of seems like the election of 2016 and you know, what we've seen over the past five years. Um, it, it seems that at least what we see in the media, that voters are increasingly becoming more and more polarized. And I, I know you mentioned that they've kind of caught up to elites. Do you think that we've kind of reached you know, new heights of polarization you know, as it pertains to, to the masses you know, over these past few years? So the last few years have been really interesting in, in a lot of ways. There, there's a type of... Um, uh, Polarization we haven't we haven't talked about. Uh, in some sense, it doesn't really fit my schema of polarization, but but many scholars call it polarization, and that's something called affective polarization, which is really the extent to which you know one set of partisans dislike another set of the opposite of the opposite party. So I think more of what we have seen over the past four or five years is just really the fruition of extreme versions of affective polarization where you you know routinely have rhetoric of calling the other party uh, you know traitors and uh, un-American and uh, suggesting that they don't share their values. Um, one commonly cited statistic of this that kind of makes the points very clear is that, public opinion pollsters have been asking people uh, for decades whether or not they would be happy if their child married a member of the opposite party. So you ask a Republican you know, parent, do you, would you like your daughter to marry a Democrat? Uh, and the levels of people who are saying they disapprove of cross-partisan marriage have gotten really high, like 30% or something like that. Uh, at the same time, we've asked questions about cross-racial marriage and cross-racial marriage is almost universally accepted. So we go from a situation in the, you know, in the 1960s where cross-racial marriage was extremely un unpopular. Uh, Cross-party marriage was, uh, uh, was okay and we've completely reversed course so that, you know, you know marrying somebody the opposite party is completely, completely looked down upon. Uh, so I think it's that partisan animosity um, that's really been unique about the last few years. So the question is really how much of that animosity is based on these other forms of polarization, you know, the extent to which the voters are 
differentiated on policy grounds or liberal conservative grounds. And there's some debate about that. I tend to think this partisan animosity is in fact related uh, to, uh, you know, ideological, you know, ideological and policy uh, conflict, but that's not a, uh, that's not a uniformly accepted, uh, it's not a uniformly accepted view. Um, the other complication about the last four years or so is that, you know, Donald Trump, uh, who's now considered the kind of the definition of, you know, what it means to be a conservative Republican, uh, by any historical standards is not a, is not a conservative Republican. Um, so he comes to office, well, I mean, he has a background where he spent most of his life uh, as a Democrat or as an independent, spent most of the 2000s giving money to Hillary Clinton and other progressive Democrats. And then, but then announces that, you know, when he runs for office that he's a conservative Republican, but then adopts some, you know, political views which are not orthodox conservative Republican, like uh, his positions on his positions on trade is not a is not an orthodox Republican position. His position on entitlements like Social Security, uh, Medicare, the traditional conservative Republican position is that those needed to be reformed, even if it meant some uh, benefit cuts for some segments of the population. He said no. Uh, he, he was not going to, you know, entertain those entertain those reforms, and even his views on uh, immigration are not conventional conservative Republican views. Uh, if you go back over over a longer period of time, um, so the extent to which voters agree with you know Donald Trump on policy yet consider themselves to be the conservative qua conservative Republicans. It's a little hard to you know, kind of completely get your hand around because if you just simply looked at the policy positions that Trump and Trump voters have, uh, they actually look a little less polarized than conventional Republican positions because you know many of Trump's positions on trade infrastructure very similar to those of traditionally been Democratic positions. So. Uh, so we have a weird, we're at a weird moment in terms of polarization where party animosity is, you know, so bad that, you know, hundreds of people are willing to attack the Capitol building in order to prevent, uh, you know, the certification of Joe Biden's election. Uh, but many of them have policy views that are probably closer to Joe Biden's uh, than they are to Paul Ryan or Mitt Romney or, you know, uh, you know, uh, Marco Rubio. So, so it creates kind of an interesting dynamic. Right, and it seems like like political parties for for a lot of voters have become more of a of a social identity rather than you know a set of policies that that they you know wish to to see put in place. Uh, that that clearly is true. I mean, there's a fair amount of evidence that that essentially. Uh, you know, to use kind of a geeky phrase, uh, parties become a sufficient statistic for a whole set of social identities. So if you uh, know that somebody's a Republican, that increases the likelihood that they're an evangelical Christian, it increases the likelihood that they're male, it means associated with being male and uh, having conservative positions on sexuality and uh, you know, a set of policy preferences. And so, so since party is so tightly related to all of those things, those previous kind of social group conflicts can get all rolled up into, um, uh, into that assessment of what it means to be a Republican versus a Democrat, and it creates that hostility. One of the interesting things, however, is that voters uh, really overestimate how predictive party is for all of those things. So, you know, you, there are these surveys now, you ask somebody, uh, ask a Democrat voter, for example, uh, what percentage of Republicans are evangelical Christians? And, Demo you know, the typical response may be like 80%, 85% of Republicans are evangelical Christians. When the, when, the true, when the true answer, when the true answer is probably closer to 30%. 
ask Republicans, you know, what percentage of Democrats or African Americans, uh, Republicans will overestimate that by orders of magnitude, uh, you know, overestimating the extent to which the Democratic Party is uh, is an African American party. So, uh, so some of this kind of creation of social identity around policy is based on kind of mistaken assessments of how tightly these other social identities are tied in with parties. They're actually less tied in than most people think, but the fact that they overestimate it really uh, makes party much more salient in these kind of social group conflicts. Do you think that that type of, you know, those types of misconceptions might be, you know, in part a result of the age of information of social media where, you know, these algorithms of you know, social media platforms elevate the most extreme views. Um, so like what you're seeing constantly on your feed is you know, the most extreme views on either side. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think there are lots of ways in which um, both traditional media and social media have exacerbated polarization. I, I, I think traditional, well, if you wanna call cable news, traditional media, I think cable news is, is uh, particularly culpable for exactly the reasons you mentioned, which is that, uh, you know, they tend to overemphasize political conflict. And, you know, if you just look at uh, the members that of Congress, for example, that CNN interviews on a regular basis, they tend to be overrepresentative of, you know, you know, the left-wing viewpoint or the right-wing view, viewpoint. And so oftentimes, you know, voter, voters are, you know, left with a perception that, you know, those are the viewpoints that define, that define the, the two parties. Social media too, I think, because of, you know, as you mentioned, algorithms uh, both, you know, praise and dislike of particular Twitter posts tend to go to those that are less nuanced, we'll say you know, kind of more extreme views, get more, you know, retweets, uh, more likely to be ratioed as well, uh, than kind of, you know, the rare person who can take their 280 characters and make kind of a nuanced <laughs> centrist position on, on some issue. So, 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 so I don't want to overemphasize Twitter because, you know, relatively small percentage of the population is actually on Twitter and doing politics on Twitter. But Twitter is a is a particularly bad uh, uh, for getting you know good discussions of you know nuanced trade offs with respect to public policy. Uh, Facebook is you know has its own has its own problems uh, with its algorithms and you know it's just really susceptible to is really susceptible to misinformation and. Uh, Oftentimes that misinformation on Facebook gets the kind of less uh, sophisticated, um, you know, people and then, 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 they, then they act on it. So again, but because, uh, you know, the, these are trends that are going back, you know, almost 40 years. I don't want to put the entire blame on social media, but, but clearly, you know, the current array of social media outlets, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, uh, has not been very con conducive to kind of reducing polarization and probably enhanced it. Yeah, and um, you, before we move away from the topic of you know, effective polarization, do you think that that's largely a trend um, in in the public, or is it? Are we also seeing it in the elite sphere? Um, I mean. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to gauge the difference. I actually think it really is, uh, that is actually more of a public-driven phenomenon than elite theory. Uh, that's not to say that the elites don't kind of stoke it. The question is the extent to which they actually really feel it. I mean, you know, one of the, you know, over the years I've done like some media stuff where I go on one of these kind of like, uh, I don't want to say talking head shows, but more like screaming heads, where you know the, you know the the liberal and the conservative are supposed to yell at are supposed to yell at each other for twenty minutes, and then they take a commercial break, and then they're the best friends in the world. I mean, they don't actually share the personal animus uh, that they exhibited while the camera the camera was rolling. Um, so I actually don't think 
you know, there's a strong or affective polarization at the elite level. Uh, but that doesn't mean the elites are behaving responsibly when they when they stoke it uh, for the benefit of the camera, or you know to get ratings, or you know to uh, to be interesting rather than to be informative and educative. Right. It seems that a lot of elites have kind of rode the wave and you know used it to to their own political benefit. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, I mean, it's very clear. Uh, I, I don't want to name any names, but uh, there are several members of Congress now uh, who basically have become members of Congress by being internet trolls. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that doesn't have, that wouldn't have happened without, that wouldn't have happened without social, social media. They've really made a career out of demonizing the other side in ways that appeal to kind of the baser instincts of the people who are following them on social media. Right. Um, before we move on to, to other current events, I, I wanted to circle back. You, you published this, this really interesting paper um, this December in which you argue that you know, under conditions of economic decline or increasing inequality, some members of the population actually benefit from adopting an in-group favoring strategy or in other words, income inequality can lead to increased polarization. And you know, I thought that result was really interesting. You know, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about the intuition behind that. Sure, sure, sure. So my original interest in you know, that question goes all the way back to the research I was doing in the 1990s uh, and then you know, culminating in like my first book, which came out in 2006. One thing you see over the course of U.S. history is an extremely strong association between levels of economic inequality uh, and political and political polarization. So, if you think about the period in which uh, the, the two periods, and you know, in the last say 150 years, in which political polarization was particularly bad, it's now uh and at the turn of the at the turn of the 20th century the late 19th century and the you know 19 teens 1920s uh that's also a period in which economic inequality in the u.s was the highest then you have a period in which there's a lot less political polarization say from 1930 to 1970 which is also the period of time in which there was the least economic and wealth inequality in, in society so it's been a really big part of my uh, research agenda is to try to understand that correlation to understand whether it's more than a correlation that's into which it's causal i have some other empirical papers which uh show kind of a causal impact between economic inequality and political polarization in american states uh, so states have become more unequal uh economically uh tend to over time become more uh, more more polarized. Um, so this paper that you mentioned is really an attempt to try to come up with um, a theory which might help explain you know that associate that association. Uh, and the idea in that model is that you know we have two types of agents in the model: uh, people who are in one group and then people who are in another group. Uh, and then we stipulate that. Um, you interact with somebody in your own group, uh, you're more likely to have a, a decent outcome. Uh, you know, you stick, you know, you hang, you work in your local community where you know people, you interact with people, you interact all the time. You're, you're unlikely to get a very bad outcome. You're unlikely to be cheated or stolen from or whatever if you're interacting with people who are closely aligned with your, with, with your group identity. But you're unlikely to get a big payoff. You're unlikely to get a big payoff. The big payoffs come to people who are willing to, you know, stretch themselves. You know, think of a small business. You know, wants to grow into, you know, the next town or sell to people in the in the other group. The you know the upside potential is is much much bigger. Uh, but the probability of failing. Because you have less knowledge of the, you have less knowledge of the other group, or you have less ability to kind of sanction them if they cheat you, uh, means it's a much riskier proposition. So, this is a way of motivating. If I inter interact locally with members of my own group, 
it's a pretty safe bet. It's a bit riskier, big upside, big downside if I, if I interact outside the group. So in the model, when economic conditions are good, people are willing to kind of take these, uh, take these risks because the consequences of getting a bad outcome aren't so bad because things are otherwise good. But in uh, more challenging situations, whether it's economic decline, stagnation, or you know, an aversion of the model income inequality, it just becomes too risky uh, to interact with uh, members of the outside group because failure becomes failure becomes more costly. And so, when when inequality gets bigger or the economy starts to decline, people start to retrench interact more and more with their own group and avoid interactions uh, with the out group. You can also think of the model as uh, encompassing a negative uh, interaction with the, with the out group, so there's more hostility. Uh, and so you get this association between, in this case, group polarization, the extent to which groups interact with one another or not, and, and you know, the, the, performance of, the performance of the economy. The startling part of the model, I think the most important part of the model is you can start out with a good, you know, a good economic situation, lots of intergroup cooperation and collaboration that can be, you know, destroyed, you know, through economic decline or an economic crisis. And then as the economy improves, that intergroup uh, cooperation doesn't come back. So the model also has this feature that you know once intergroup cooperation is destroyed, even if good economic conditions come back, um, group conflicts may still uh, persist. And so that's the pessimistic uh, part of that uh, story. Right, and that's it's a really striking finding because you know obviously this is just speculation and, and probably a question. For historians decades from now but you know when we look at the 2008 financial crisis and then you know eight years later the the election of donald trump and this you know seemingly explosion of polarization maybe there's you know some causal link you know between those two events yeah i mean i've i've written a little bit about the the political consequences of the financial crisis and they're really i you know when we started writing that particular book they're really you know two plausible ways of thinking about how a financial crisis might affect politics. One is that it could almost be like a war in the sense that it would have a rally around the flag effect. There would be more empathy and common sympathy and uh, it would be depolarizing or that it could uh, essentially, uh, the economic stress could kind of destroy those uh, uh, cross group bounds uh, that pre-existed. That pre and it, it's pretty clear, I think, from the, the evidence that it was the latter, that, you know, the financial crisis was a very, uh, was a very polarizing event. There's a lot of research now cross-nationally uh, over time with other types of financial crises like uh, the, Great, the Great Depression, also some cross-nationals of the Great Recession, which reinforces this, that uh, these events are very, very polarizing, but they tend to be polarizing in a kind of surprising way. We typically think of a, of a financial shock, like a financial crisis is potentially being polarizing from the left and that, you know, people get poor, then demand for redistribution goes up. The left will mobilize on the basis of those demands, and the polarization will essentially come from the left. We find exactly the opposite when it comes to these financial crises, and the polarization comes from the right. It's really the right that gets uh, mobilized in response, and they often get mobilized around issues of group identity and xenophobia, populism. And I, I think that's very consistent with the kind of the, the, the model that we've been talking about, which is that the, you know, the primary polarizing impact is a withdrawal of kind of intergroup cooperation, uh, that these shocks happen. Uh, certain voters just decide, voters, citizens, whatever, decide that uh, they're going to uh, withdraw from these social connections.
perhaps blame the other, perhaps blame the other group, you know, uh, mobilize around kind of populist themes, anti-immigration, anti-trade, anti-expertise, anti-elites. And so I think there's a kind of consistency with uh, this model, which is a theoretical model, with a lot of data about, you know, how economic shocks and deprivation uh, tend to affect politics in this kind of group-oriented uh, way. Right, uh, that's kind of a worrisome implication given that we're you know, in the midst of an economic crisis you know, this year. Are, are you optimistic or do you think we're, we're going to see something similar? Um, well, you know, one of the strange things about COVID is that, uh, you know, it's an economic crisis for some and has been a boon windfall for, for, for others. Um, I, I think it will in some sense depend, you know, how, how, how things, you know, how things play out. I, I do think it was very smart uh, for the Biden administration to really kind of, you know, and also, I, I'll give Trump some credit here too. He was not a big impediment uh, to to really erring on the side of giving too much support uh, to you know to to people working class people who are affected by by COVID. I, I think absent uh, you know those stimulus payments and the the COVID relief, I think there really could have been a much bigger. Not that there hasn't been one, but a much bigger kind of social, a social backlash uh, related related to COVID. Um, so I think the future will really depend, you know, really depend on, uh, you know, how the vaccinations go, how quickly the economy comes back together, whether or not it uh, restores faith uh, in government's ability to manage a crisis like that through the means it did over the past year. Uh, if things stagnate, go south, you know, vaccines fail, the economy doesn't rebound, uh, I can imagine the situation being very bad because there's already a tendency, you know, as we've seen with um, anti-Asian violence to really use this as a, you know, to, to scapegoat Asians over COVID. If the government response fails, it will just reinforce the kind of negative trust that many people have in the government and its ability to solve problems. Will presumably blame immigrants or others for the government's inability to, you know, to deal with COVID. And I think the situation could could get very bad. So really, a lot depends on how vaccinations and the economy does for the next next six months. Probably won't kill off polarization and conflict. But if things go badly, uh, you know, the conflicts will be that much worse. That's uh, definitely a little worrisome to think about. Um, another you know, interesting thing about COVID and polarization is that it seems that in the United States, rather than, you know, the two sides uniting against the, this common enemy, you know, to fight this crisis, there was kind of a politic politicization of the crisis where, you know, those on the right were maybe more hesitant to support lockdown measures, you know, and, and the opposite on the left. Do you think that um, that was, you know, a result of this building polarization, you know, starting decades ago? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they have to, I think they have to be related in, in, in some way. I mean, that's, you know, you put your finger on this single most disappointing thing about a response to COVID, which is that uh, polarization had created a kind of an inability to kind of adopt a common set of policies and approaches and to politicize things that, that are very hard to understand why they're so political, like, like mask, like mask wearing. Uh, I can understand more why, you know, lockdowns and business closures, very polarizing, different people have different, you know, tolerances for how much economic activity they're willing to give up to stop a disease. I mean, so I get that. Uh, what, what I don't get is uh, as easily is the kind of the, you know, the mask wearing and the distancing, the kind of more symbolic politics. But I, I, I do think that's why, you know, it probably is related to this kind of uh, massive increase in polarization, especially the affective partisanship, because 
very quickly, you know, mask wearing became a signifier of uh, which side of the political divide uh, divide you're on. And, uh, you know, re Republicans just stopped wearing masks because, you know, that's what Republicans did. And that's, you know, it's very, you know, that's very, dis that's very, dis that's very, dis that's very disappointing. Uh, the other aspect, which I haven't, you know, explain much here is that there's increasing polarization across states and geography. So not just simply that Democrats and Republicans are, you know, more different than they were before. But as a result of that, the we'll say the balance of power across states is very different. So the governing philosophy of Texas and the governing philosophy of California have diverged dramatically in large part because Texas is a Republican state and California is a Democratic state. So we got confronted by this kind of national crisis that required a fairly unified you know, res response. I mean, federalism was always challenged by these things because you know, there's some, some powers vest in the federal government, some in the, some in the states, but you want to have you know, the, the willingness of states to go along with with federal guidance uh, to kind of minimize the, you know, the spillovers from state to state. But because of the polarization, you know, every state kind of went its own way in terms of lockdowns, reopenings, mass, social distancing. And so you, in a situation where you really needed a unified policy approach, um, especially like in the Northeast, right? I mean, you know, I'm 15 minutes from Pennsylvania. Uh, how crazy is it that Pennsylvania and New Jersey have locked down at different times or reopened at different times and have, have different different rules? I mean, that's the problem with federalism. You really need them to have the same rules. We just didn't get that, both because of the fragmented nature of our federalism and plopping this big polarization problem on top of it. Right. Uh, do you think we're seeing something similar now with the vaccination efforts? Um, I think that's, I, I, I mean, it's clear if you look at survey data and ask people, you know, their plans about being vaccinated, there is a strong correlation between partisanship and whether or not you state that you're planned to get vaccinated. The Republicans uh, obviously less likely to say they want to get vaccinated. Um, my impression is that if you actually look at who's been vaccinated, the partisan gap is a little bit small, is somewhat smaller than what we get in the surveys where you just ask people whether they want to get vaccinated, which, you know, suggests that, yes, there's a set of Republicans who just, you know, are not going to get vaccinated because I guess that's not what Republicans do. Uh, but it's a little bit overstated because I think there are a lot of Republicans who are, you know, getting uh, vaccinated <laughs> in, in secret like Donald Trump did, you know. Uh, he just won't acknowledge that he got vaccinated. I think there are a lot of Republicans who actually have gotten vaccinated, just won't acknowledge that. So actually that particular problem in the end won't be as large. I think, you know, you know, vaccines will become more popular as people see that they work and, and, and that will go away. But, you know, in the short run, the fact that, you know, Republicans are more hesitant to get the vaccine and more hesitant to do all these other distancing, you know, masking measures, you know, is, you know, it's going to drag the crisis out longer than it really needs to be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, before we wrap up, I, I wanted to, you know, kind of go back to the broader theme of what we've been talking about, polarization. And I wanted to ask you, are there any solutions to what we've been seeing? I mean, I, I think there are, there are not solutions as in turning back the clock, uh, you know, to 1978, <laughs> even if we wanted to. There are lots of reasons why we don't want to turn back the clock to, to 1978. There were a lot of ways in which that less polarized political system was dysfunctional, too, because one of the ways that you uh, solve polarization is by, you know, keeping certain voices out of the political system. So, you know, one of the reasons why more polarization is because African-Americans, Latinos, new immigrants, women are much more active in the political system than they were before. So that's not something we want to reform, okay? Uh, but, but the things we really want to do is to try to uh, 
come up with a set of governing principles that allow us to govern well uh, in a polarized environment. So one of the things I, I think would be helpful, it's not gonna, I mean, maybe because of polarization is not gonna happen, is reforming the Senate so that the Senate can operate on a more majoritarian basis. It's extremely hard to have a Senate that operates on a super majoritarian basis in a world in which the parties are, are, are so far apart. So, you know, making the making Senate operate more on a majority basis will at least take away some of the negative impacts of polarization. I, I think there, uh, I think the news media can play an important role in a couple of ways. Uh, one is they could do more to uh, uh, inform people better that, you know, it's not the case that Republicans and Democrats are so different on every single issue. As I mentioned, there's this over estimation of how different Democrats and Republicans are on on policy and on kind of uh, social group identities that could be covered that could be covered better you know in terms of you know identifying that actually Republicans and Democrats are not that far apart uh, on, a, on a variety of things uh, the other thing I think could be helpful is that there's just been this decimation of the local news uh, and so uh, because of that, almost all politics has been nationalized. And I think that's had a really big polarizing effect. And that like every single candidate from office, you know, all the way from president to dog catcher runs on a national political platform, uh, you know, which is naturally polarized uh, because it's very hard to get traction on local issues because local news coverage is so bad. So. So finding ways to reinvigorate uh, local news, to highlight you know local questions, local political debates, uh, those are things that tend to be less polarized uh, politically than you know uh, you know what you know whether or not uh, you know we should have a you know a big stimulus bill at the federal level. Um, there's some things that can be used, some counterintuitive things that can be useful at the level of campaign finance, the way campaigns are uh, financed. One of the disturbing and very striking findings in the recent literature has been that uh, this explosion of small donor contributions that have been both stimulated by the internet and made possible by the internet and social media uh, has had a, a really profound polarizing impact in that it's really the most extreme candidates who are most reliant uh, on, the, on those donations. And uh, it's really the more extreme donors who are participating the most in that small donor system. So it's not really a reform, but one of the things that we ought to be wary of is uh, there are a lot of people who would like to make uh, small donor contributions uh, easier, in fact, subsidize them. So there's a bill before Congress now that would do a six to one match for small donor contributions. I think something like that would go in completely the wrong direction. Uh, I, I think it'd be better to have a, you know, a campaign finance system uh, less reliant on uh, internet trolling to raise money. Uh, I don't exactly know what that would be, but you know it could be, and I don't think it would be bad if it were to make it easier for candidates to raise money from corporations and labor unions, or perhaps to make uh, political parties, the formal institutions of political parties, a, a much bigger player uh, in campaign finance, uh, so as to kind of prevent the Marjorie Taylor Greens. Uh, from being able to kind of self-fund themselves through uh, internet trolling. Uh, I think that would make for a less polarized system if she had to go to the Republican Party to get her money and they could, you know, tell her no unless she, you know, shaped up. Um, so those are, you know, so, some basic ideas. I don't think they're going to eliminate polarization, but I also don't think that eliminating polarization is necessarily an ideal either. Right. Well, I, you know, responding to, to that thing about uh, what you just said about campaign finance reform, um, small donations, right? Like, even if they lead to more polarization, they also, in, in a lot of senses, are, are still preferred to 
you know, corporations and, and um, special interest groups dominating politics, right? Yeah, that's a trade-off. I mean, this is one of the things that if you, you, you look at politics enough is that ability to solve all problems is pretty limited. So I concede totally that, you know, try, you know, that having politicians rely more on, you know, corporate and labor union donors has presents its own set of problems. But, you know, also incentivizing small dollar contributions has the kind of polarizing effect. So some sense we can make trade-offs between polarization, especially that driven, fueled by affective polarization or special interest group influence. And so, you know, it's not a, I think reasonable people can choose different positions on that trade-off, but uh, I think maybe we've gone too far in terms of uh, uh, creating a system that's really conducive to polarization in efforts to eliminate special uh, interest group influence um, without actually really reducing special interest group influence all that much because that's really driven much more, I think, by the vast amounts of money these groups spend on lobbying as opposed to, to campaign contributions. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not dismissive of the concern about special group influence, but uh, I'm not sure we've done much to control it by the way the, the system is kind of uh, pushed more and more toward individual small donor contributions. Right, and I suppose that is the nature of public policy that there's always gonna be trade-offs. Um, yeah. Of yeah, that's one of the reasons why I, I really, uh, you know, uh, you know, I always start these things by saying polarization isn't everything that's bad because there are bad things that are not polarization. <laughs> so special group influence is something that's bad, but it's not necessary. It's not necessarily polarizing. In fact, it, it can often be the can often be the opposite. Uh, but you know, um, you know, nobody's ever devised the perfect set of political institutions. We just have to adapt to whatever the biggest challenges are at any particular time. Right, and, and in some sense, uh, polarization is good. Like you mentioned in your book, you know, it, it, it's good in the sense that it outlines you know, clear policy positions for you know, voters to choose from. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we, just like I, I described, there was a bunch of elites in the 1950s and 60s who thought the system needed more polarization. I think they were right. Uh, it's just, I think that it went, it went too far. We, we took too much of that medicine. Uh, one of the reasons they thought they needed too much more polarization is because they thought there were too much special group, uh, interest group influence. You know, so, you know, one way of thinking about what happened is we, you know, took this medicine to polarize the system to eliminate special group, interest group influence. It stopped working. And then there's side effects from that medication that we're dealing with now. And so we need to rethink, you know, you know, how we treat both of those uh, problems. Do you think that that subject of polarization is, you know, do you see it like being taken on by politicians? It, it seems like, you know, it's discussed a lot in academia, but maybe not so much in, in the public sphere. Um, I mean, it is. I mean, politicians are aware of it. I mean, they often blame it for why they retire from office. They just say, I can't take the polarization anymore. And uh, my, my take, however, is that they often want to blame the wrong things. Like they want to blame gerry, gerry, gerrymandering. And uh, I won't go into it now. Uh, people can look at the, my book to see what I think about whether gerrymandering has caused polarization, but the quick answer is no. But politicians will always say that's the root cause and we can fix it. Or they say things like Citizens United is the reason which, you know, there's uh, the reason we've just been talking about probably is not the case since it really seems to be small donor contributions that are the problem. Um, so they talk about a lot. I think they often misdiagnose the problem uh, so as to minimize their personal responsibility. Um, very few of them just want to say, I mean, we're all ambitious politicians. We want to survive in a political or polarized political environment. And so we do things that we know we shouldn't be doing, but we do it because, you know, we need to 
to do that to be successful in this environment. Um, so I, I think they think about it a lot. I don't think they, but I do think they go out of their way to move the blame to things that are just outside their control. Uh, I, I would like to see more of them be more uh, reflective about how you know their own individual behaviors contribute uh, you know to the problem. Right. So our last question on, on every episode, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I have to ask, what's the punchline? Oh, well, you know, uh, since I've been doing this for 30 years, it's very hard to have a punchline. But I, I guess we, I can, uh, you know, uh, say, you know, polarization is not everything that's bad. And uh, there are lots of reasons to be concerned about uh, polarization. Uh, and we have to, you know, perhaps, but, you know, come up with some ways of kind of living, kind of living with it and, you know, making sure that it doesn't, you know, undermine our ability to, to govern ourselves. Right. Well, thanks so much for being here with me today, Professor McCarty. Uh, that concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. You can visit us at policypunchline.com and, uh, follow Professor McCarty's work, um, Sorry, Professor McCarty, do you, do you have Twitter? Where else can our listeners? Yeah, I do. I mean, Twitter. I mean, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, Nolan under slash underscore MC. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much for, for listening today. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.